Can we just say amen together, church? Amen? Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you, worship team. If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles, uh, turn turn it on, whatever the case may be, and uh, let's look at the passage that Maurice just read, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. That's our passage today. When I... When I was in college, which, you know, in my mind, it still feels like just a few years ago, but actually it was like 20 years ago. Uh, when I was in college, I heard Philip Yancey make this offhanded comment about Romans 7, the passage that Maurice just read, and it, it made me chuckle what he said. He was talking about the Apostle Paul, and he, he said something like this, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, from what I can tell in the New Testament, Paul was this amazing man who rarely ever sinned and didn't seem to struggle with sin like I do. Except for those famous words from Romans 7. Bless that chapter, he says. Now, why did Philip Yancey say bless that chapter, that wonderful chapter of Romans 7? Well, it's because Romans 7 teaches us that the Apostle Paul was human. He was like you and me. It teaches us that even the most holy and sanctified among us, other than Jesus Christ, we all struggle with sin. And that, you know, that that shouldn't fill us with glee. (laughs) You know, he sins and I sin too. It shouldn't fill us with apathy either. You know, oh, we all sin, so who cares? But it should encourage us in our battle against sin. Paul struggled with this. I'm going to struggle with this. Let's fight the good fight of our faith. Last week, if you remember, I told you that when you become a Christian, you move from the battle you can't win, the battle to fulfill the law in your own power. You move from the battle you can't win to the battle now that you can't ultimately lose. Because Jesus Christ has saved you by his blood. You embark on a journey, when you become a Christian, you embark on this journey that ultimately ends at the celestial city. That's where we're headed. But I'll just tell you that that journey is hard. Read Pilgrim's Progress. That journey is tough. The battle is intense at times. The message today, Romans 7, 14 to 25, is about the intensity of that battle. We're going to peer into the inner workings of the Apostle Paul's mind this morning. And it gets a little hairy. It's, you know, brace yourself, Christian, for what we're going to do today. You know, if I could use the King James Bible for a moment here. You need to gird up your loins this morning, Christian, for Romans 7. Because we're going to take communion in just a few moments. And we're going to celebrate the gospel. But before we get to the gospel, I want us to experience and see the fierceness of the battle that we're in as Paul describes it. It is fierce. But, just a reminder, it's a battle that we can't ultimately lose. Because we are on the side of Jesus Christ, right? Amen, church? Y'all with me this morning? So let's get into this this morning. I've entitled this message today, I Fought the Law and the Gospel Won. (laughs) We're going to get to the gospel in a second, but Paul, just so you know, Paul mentions the law. You probably heard that a lot as Maurice was reading. He mentions the law nine times in this text, and 
I think 23 times in Romans 7. So Romans 7 is about the law, the law, the law. And obviously this is important to Paul's argument here. So let's talk about the law and how it relates to us and our need for the gospel. This is number one in your notes. The law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. That's what Paul is saying here. The law is spiritual. The law is even empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit even. It's good. It derives from God. It's, it's holy and it's righteous. It'd be great if we could hear the law, understand the law, and obey it perfectly. That would be fantastic, but we can't do that because it is spiritual and we are fleshly. And there's this thing inside of all of us called sin. And sin is the wrench in the gears of our plans to obey God. We want to obey the law perfectly, but we can't because we've got sin inside of us. The problem, the problem is that we've got this Mr. Hyde inside of us constantly that is wrecking Dr. Jekyll's plans, right? Did you read the book this last week? I hope you read the book. If you didn't read it last week, read it next week. Short book, should get through it. And, and what was Robert Louis Stevenson writing about there? There, he, He's writing about this monster that's inside of us that keeps blowing our desire to do the right thing. We may have defeated the monster through our faith in Christ, but that, that flesh still persists. By the way, Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of that book, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he knew about Romans 7. He was a good Presbyterian kid. He grew up in a Calvinistic home. He knew all about this. And there's even some good evidence that he wrote that book as an outworking of Romans chapter 7. He knew this struggle. He knew the Mr. Hyde that was inside of him. And even as followers of Jesus, we still have to deal with that monster within. It's, it's a fight we won't ultimately lose, but we, we still have to fight. Paul had to fight. We're going to have to fight. Look at verse 15 with me. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. In verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that sound familiar? Is this, this, I mean, this is autobiographical here for Paul. It could be autobiographical for all of us in this room. I just want to point out a few things here in the text for you. If you just indulge me for a moment, let me just point out a few grammatical aspects of even the Greek text here. You know, Paul's entire mode of writing here has turned autobiographical. And that was even true in last week's passage. I mentioned that briefly. If you look at verse 8, uh, we looked at this last week. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me... All kinds of covetousness. In verse 9, he said, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So, I mean, Paul was using the first person, singular language, even from last week's passage. Verse 13, he said, did that which is good in me then bring death to me? Lots of I's, lots of me's, lots of first person singular pronouns here. But there is a difference between last week's text and this week's text, and I want you all to see this. Last week's text was past tense verbs. Paul was talking about autobiographically about his life before salvation. This did happen. In the Greek, the verb used there is the aorist tense. But when you get to our passage today, 
verses 14 through 25. You move away from the past tense. What do you get instead? You get the present tense. This is, this is Paul at that time struggling with this. I told you all before in my Bible, uh, in my Greek Bible, I highlight whenever there's an imperative or a command, I, I highlight it pink. I told you all that, right? Well, whenever there's a present tense verb, I highlight it blue. So even that, just looking at this passage, you can just look down it in my Bible and you see blue, 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 blue. Why is it all blue? Because this, this is Paul talking in the present tense. This is what I am struggling with right now. Right now I'm struggling with it. Why is that significant, Pastor Tony? Why is that significant? The significance is that Paul, as a Christian, you all with me? As a follower of Christ, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was struggling with sin. If he was struggling, we're going to struggle with this. Now you know why Philip Yancey looked at Romans 7 and said, bless that chapter. Because this is Paul just bearing his soul, talking specifically and painfully about his battle with sin. Paul mentions covetousness in verse 15. Or, or previously, last week. So maybe that's the thing he hates in verse 15. He doesn't say, he just says, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, that's what I do. He hates it, but he can't stop doing it. Maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's something else. Maybe for you, it's not covetousness. Maybe it's, maybe it's anger and rage. You want to stop being angry, but you can't. Maybe it's lust Maybe it's discontentment in your soul. Maybe it's laziness or apathy. You hate those things. You hate those things about yourself, and you want to stop doing it, but you keep doing the very thing that you hate. I heard a pastor say once that you can discern the spiritual maturity of a Christian by how much they hate sin. And I think there's something to that. And it's not just that they, it's, it's definitely not that they're sinless. They're not. No mature Christian is sinless. They'll sin less, and we will sin less as we grow as a Christian, but we'll also grow in our hatred of sin. And, and, and if I could just qualify that for a moment, you can tell somebody's spiritual maturity not by how much they hate sin, like the sin out there, or how much they hate the sin of other people. That's actually pretty easy to hate that. You know, to hate the sin of your spouse or hate the sin of your kids. You can tell the maturity of a Christian by how much they hate the sin that is right here inside of them. There is a sin inside of me, and I hate it, and I'm struggling to defeat it. You know, in that book, in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll is an upstanding, fine, upstanding citizen, but he's frustrated as he ages because there's a part of him that, that is wicked and evil, and he, and he feels like it's holding him back. There's something inside of him that's holding him back. So he, he develops this potion, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to separate the good side of him and the evil side of him because he says, there's even a quote in the book where he says, I feel like an incongruous compound of good and evil mixed together. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like us? An incongruous compound of good and evil all mixed up together. So Dr. Jekyll, he makes this potion, and now he's got a bad side to him, Mr. Hyde. And this word Hyde derives from the word for hideous or hidden. This is the hideous, hidden side of Dr. Jekyll. 
And so the bad side of him goes out at night when he drinks the potion, and then the good side of Dr. Jekyll is during the day. And what Dr. Jekyll finds out is, as he takes this potion, Mr. Hyde, his alter ego, is way, way, way more evil than he ever could have imagined. He's a murderer. And, and what he realizes, too, is that, you know, as much as he's trying to separate himself, those two are both a part of him. He is authentically both of those. I am Dr. Jekyll, and I am Mr. Hyde. They are both him. And what's strangely encouraging about Romans 7 is that Paul confesses in this passage that there's a Mr. Hyde inside of him too. There is this dark side, this hidden side, this hideous side to him. There's a sinfulness of flesh that he's got to battle against. Maybe that resonates with you this morning. Maybe you feel like an incongruous compound of good and evil mixed together. Can you relate to that? I can. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can tell you how many times I've said that in my life. There's a part of me that wants to do the right thing. There's a part of me that longs to do the right thing. But there's a Mr. Hyde there too that's battling against me. Paul's struggle, we're going to struggle too. This is, this is not unusual. This is the Christian life. I, I know this is a perfectly cheery message this morning. But I don't think I'm saying anything that you guys are shocked by. So the law is spiritual. It's good. But I am fleshly. There's a carnality in me, even as a growing Christian, that I've got to reckon with. And secondly, here's another thing that Paul shows us autobiographically. He shows us that the law is perfect, but I am imperfect. Paul says this in verse 16. By the way, stay with me here, because Paul, Paul's going to take us on a ride to the inner recesses of his mind. And it's a bumpy ride, okay? You're going to want to get off this ride before we're done. But here's, here's the good thing about going on this ride with Paul. You've got to go through the bad stuff or the tough stuff of verses 16 to 23 to get to the euphoria of verse 24, okay? We'll get there in a second, but first, let's hear Paul out. Paul says, verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. If you remember, part of Paul's whole diatribe here is that the law the thou shalt nots of the Old Testament, those are good. Those are good. Paul says in verse 12 that the law is holy and righteous and good. It is. The law is not evil. And the fact that Paul doesn't do what he wants to do proves that it is good. That's what he's saying in verse 16. It's not the law's fault that Paul can't follow through with it. That doesn't make the law bad. It points out that Paul is sinful, that we are sinful. We can't do what the law wants us to do. So, verse 17, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The law is perfect, but I am imperfect, tainted by sin. I can't follow through with the law because of the sin inside of me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability in my flesh to carry it out. Pastor Tony, I want to get up in the morning and read my Bible. 
but I just keep sleeping in. Pastor Tony, I want to share my faith with unbelievers, with lost people, but I just keep wimping out. Why do I do that? Why, why do I commit those sins of omission, not just commission? Pastor Tony, I want to stop losing my temper with my kids. I do. Pastor Tony, I want to stop watching inappropriate movies on Netflix and Amazon Prime. I know I should stop doing that. I feel horrible after I do it. But I just keep losing the battle with sin. Does this sound familiar? Does this resonate with anybody? Pastor Tony, I know I should respect my husband and follow his leadership. I know I shouldn't call him an idiot. It just kind of slipped out of my mouth when I wasn't paying attention. Pastor Tony, I know I should love my wife as Christ loves the church. I know I shouldn't call her cooking a burnt offering for the Lord. It just slipped out when I wasn't paying attention. Why do I say those things? Why do I hurt her feelings? Why do I hurt other people? You know, a lot of our sins are sins of the tongue, aren't they now? You know, we're going to be looking at the book of James as, as elders in a few weeks, and I get the privilege of dealing with the tongue in James because I'm the extrovert who talks for a living, right? And what does James say about the tongue? You can tame the whole body, maybe. No man tames the tongue. It's a restless evil. Why do we say those things? Why do we do these things? Why do we hurt each other? Why do we still struggle so mightily with sin after 30, 40, 50 years of following Christ? Here's why. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You can pretty much interchange in this scripture here, this section, you can interchange evil with sin and the flesh. Paul's using those words, those concepts interchangeably. So, I try to do the right thing, evil's right there. I try to do the right thing, and, and the flesh is right there. there. There's this battle going on inside of me. I read God's word, and I want to obey it, but then also there's this sin nature in me that wants to sin. And it's like, it's like World War II happening in my soul. And the Axis powers are advancing on my allied powers, and I'm trying to hold them back. This is going on inside of me right now. You know, in the Roman world, the poet... Virgil, he, he, he talks about this king whose name is Mezentius. And Mezentius would torment prisoners and murderers. He would torment them by attaching to them the dead body of the person that they killed. So they would have to walk around, these condemned murderers, with a dead body attached to them, a dead decomposing body that they killed. And, you know, that's it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a gross analogy, I know. 
But that's what our flesh is like. That's what the Christian life is like. We're dragging around this dead body of sin and death called the flesh. And it's holding us down. Remember, remember what St. Francis of Assisi said about his flesh? Remember what he called it? Brother donkey, right? You, you tell your flesh to do something. You tell yourself to do something, and hee-haw, he doesn't want to do it. Why doesn't he want to do it? Because he's, he's opposed to you. Actually, um, Mark Twain, who was probably not a Christian, he, but he had some insight into this. He, called, he said there was this thing inside of him called his inner mule. And he wants to do something. He desires to do something, but that inner mule inside of him keeps resisting it. You tell it to do something, and it won't do it. It does the exact opposite of what he wants him to do. Why? Because he told him to do it. That's why it does the opposite. That's his inner mule. Can I just... All right, let's, let me... I'm a little nervous about this, but let me sh- share my own struggle with Brother Donkey. Can I do that with you this morning? I've been thinking this through in my own life, and, you know, I, I guess I figure if Paul can do this, be this transparent, then Pastor Tony can do it, even if it makes us a little bit comfortable, uncomfortable. I told you last week that the older you get as, as a Christian, the more you start to see the sin in the cracks of your heart. And I'll just tell you that that's happening as I age. I see things in my heart, and I get frustrated with my own flesh. And I, I, I wonder, you know, when am I going to stop envying the success of other pastors? When am I going to stop being so negative and discontented throughout the week? Why am I like that? Why do I get a twisted satisfaction at seeing other pastors fall? Why do I celebrate when my opinions on someone else's character is proved right? Why don't I mourn in those moments for the loss of influence for Christ? I don't want to be like that. Brother Donkey strikes again in my heart. Why am I so restless and discontent? Why do I get so negative sometimes? Why do I put that on my wife? I feel like sometimes at home I have this dark cloud hanging over me. And I go and hang out with somebody and I just give them a piece of my dark cloud. Thank you, Pastor Tony. I appreciate that. Things were going great until I hung out with you. I don't want to be like that. Why do I lose my temper sometimes with stupid stuff? Why do I cuss under my breath sometimes? Why do I cuss over my breath sometimes? I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years, 30 plus years. Why hasn't that changed yet in me? Your pastor is messed up, okay? He needs help. I'm going to keep going. Why do I think the worst of people sometimes? Why can't I assume the best? I want people to assume the best of me. Why do I assume the worst of others? Why am I so contentious at elders' meetings sometimes? Don't amen that, elders. Why am I so domineering at my small group sometimes? Why am I so dismissive of my wife and son? Why do I disregard God's good gifts in my life and lust after the gifts of other people? Why am I not more generous 
more kind, more disciplined, more patient, more like Jesus. By the way, I'm not, I'm not spilling my guts with you this morning because it's cathartic. It's not cathartic. It's the opposite of that. It's quite embarrassing. I'm, I'm telling you these things so that you will know that your pastor is a sinner saved by grace. You knew that already. It's good to be reminded of that. It's probably good for you to be reminded of that. Let me say this too while we're talking about grace. I never want to use grace as an excuse for my sin either or to quit the fight. I'm in a dogfight right now and that dogfight's going to continue and continue until I go home to glory. Here's the great thing about that dogfight. It's a fight that I can't ultimately lose because Jesus Christ is my Savior and He paid for my sins past, present, and future. And that, that motivates me to keep fighting, right? Write this down as number three in your notes. The law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. The law is perfect, but I am imperfect. Here's another conflict that Paul has inside of him. Thirdly, Paul tells us that the law is a delight to him. He loves it. The law is a delight, but I am conflicted. Paul says, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In his inner being, there's an aspect of Paul that loves the law of God. He's like David in the Old Testament. David delighted in the law of the Lord. And that makes sense. The law is a reflection of God's character. This would be, I think, especially pronounced in the Apostle Paul's life because he was a Jew. He was a believing Jew. And the law is part of his heritage as a Jew. The law is one of those things that separated him and the people of Israel from the other pagan nations that surrounded them. They had the law and other people didn't. Even in our day, I think we should embrace this. We can delight in the law of the Lord. And we should delight in the law of the Lord. I I do. I'm an Old Testament guy. I get this. I love the Old Testament because it came from God. It's the law of God. I delight in the Ten Commandments. I want to see the Ten Commandments embraced by the world. The greatest thing about Western society is that there are remnants of the Ten Commandments that have been passed down throughout the centuries. I want to live in a world like that, that delights in the law, where people don't steal, kill, or or commit adultery against each other. Right? Don't you all want that? Even atheists want that. Even secularists want that. They want to live in a world where that delights in the law, even though they fight against that. They take an ax to the base of their own tree. Even those Antifa delinquents out there who are causing all kinds of problems right now in our world, when they grow up and they have kids, who do you think they're going to hire to babysit their kids? Their anarchist friends? No, they're going to hire the Christians down the street because they believe in the Ten Commandments and follow through with the Ten Commandments, right? We all delight in the law of the Lord. Here's the problem with the law of the Lord, though. And this is where we need to think clearly about this. We love it. We delight in it. 
but it can't save us from our sin. It can point out our sin, but it can't save us from our sin. And as we grow as a Christian in terms of our sanctification, we need to understand that we need more than just the law in order to grow as a believer in Christ. For more on that, come back next week. We'll talk about the Spirit of God inside of us. Jesus said himself, you can read this on the screen, John 5, 39, as it relates to the Scripture. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to me. That law points to me as your Savior. It can't save you. Only I can save you. Paul says here, I keep trying to be the best Dr. Jekyll I can be, but Mr. Hyde keeps rearing his ugly head. Brother Donkey keeps waging war against me. So I'm conflicted inside of me. The law is good, but I can't carry it out, not in my own power. And then what does Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me? Have you gotten to that place yet? An unbeliever has to get to that place. You know what? You have to come to that place again and again and again as a believer. I'm still wretched. Save me. Sanctify me, Lord Jesus. Only you can do it. There's a There's an old ditty that goes like this. It's great. It probably dates back to John Bunyan, but I don't think anybody knows for sure. Here's how it goes. Do this and that, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. There's another version of that poem that goes like this. I like this one even better. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. There's this really cruel thing that we do in America, and I just want to address it right now. What I'm going to say is going to sound really cynical, but I'm just, I'm just going to say it, okay? There's a cruel thing that we do Because we take these celebrities who are fabulously gifted, musicians, athletes, you know, entrepreneurs, politicians, whatever, and and we give them a microphone and we tell them, inspire the children of America. And you know what they do? They say, hey, kids, you know, if you if you just work really, really hard, you can be just like me. You can make your dreams come true. You can be anything you want to be. That is so cruel to kids. Because, you know, the averages are against them. All of them with that. For You know, we take, take an NBA player, for instance. If you just work hard enough, it doesn't matter if you're five foot nothing. You know, you can be an NBA star just like me. You can be the next, you know, if you just work hard enough, you can be the next Donald Trump. You can be the next LeBron James. You can be the next Julia Roberts if you just try hard enough. That is cruel to kids. They can't do that. They need better better vision for their lives. You know, I remember this, there's this great moment. (laughs) Phil Jackson, okay, the coach of the Chicago Bulls. This is the only time I'm going to mention him in a positive light, okay? So, (laughs) 
There's this great moment when he was being interviewed by the media, and all these parents were angry because when Michael Jordan came out of retirement, at first he, he couldn't wear number 23 like he used to, so he wore number 45. And so all these kids and their parents bought these jerseys, these Chicago Bulls jerseys with 45 on it. Well, all of a sudden, Jordan got tired of 45 and went back to 23, even though it was against league rules. So all these parents were furious. And they, they, you know, they'd spent hundreds of dollars on jerseys for their kids with 45. And so the, the media got a hold of this, and they asked Phil Jackson, like, what do you think about it? This is really bad, isn't it? What do you feel, how do you feel about all these parents who are angry? And Phil Jackson said, <laughs> this is a great quote, he said, buy your kids books. Don't buy them Michael Jordan jerseys. Great quote. And it's so realistic, too. I get really annoyed when celebrities, when people get in front of people and give them a vision for their life that is untenable, that they can't possibly reach. When guys who are six foot four and taller try to convince people, and by the way, the average height in America is five foot nine for males, by the way. You're not making the NBA. You heard it here first, okay? Just quit. And it's cruel when people get in front of everybody else and say, go after this thing that you can't possibly reach. Where am I going with this? I'm going somewhere, I promise. Churches do something similarly cruel when we tell the kids in our church who we dearly love and we want them to succeed in life. And we tell them, all right, little Johnny, you be a good boy. You be good. You be nice. Jesus was nice. You be nice. Be a nice, good boy all of your life. And that's all God asks of you. And then little Johnny, when he's about 18 or 19 or 20, sometimes earlier than that, he's going to have this Romans 7 crisis in his soul. And he's going to say, I can't be good. I can't stop this. I can't be nice like I want to. What am I going to do about that? You know what he's going to say? He might not use these words. He's going to say something like this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from myself? And little Susie is going to say the same thing. Oh, wretched woman that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Who will deliver me from myself? What are you going to do with that, parents? What are you going to do with that, Harvest Kids teacher? It's almost VBS time. What are we going to tell our kids? We're going to tell them in the midst of their Romans 7 crisis, or maybe even before it comes. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will save this wretched man, this wretched woman, this wretched boy, this wretched girl full of sin? Salvation is available, but it's not through the law, and it's not through yourself. It's not through being nice. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's number four in your notes. The law is good. It is. It's a delight. But Jesus is better. 
You know, there's two, there's two twin truths in the Christian faith that you always need to keep in front of you. Keep it in front of your kids. Keep it in front of yourself. The first, and it's the twin truths of Romans 8, 24, and 25. Sorry, Romans 7, 24, and 25. The first truth is that we are wretched. We, there's a Mr. Hyde inside of all of us. We are wretched sinners. And the second truth is that we are redeemed. We are wretched and we are redeemed. We are wholly unholy, and yet we are wholly redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Martin Luther said it best. He said, Simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously righteous and peccator, a sinner. Who will deliver this wretch? Who will deliver this peccator, this sinner right here? It's not the law. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do this and that. The law commands, but give me, gives me neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. I fought the law and Jesus won. I fought the law and the gospel won. What's the gospel, Pastor Tony? It's almost VBS time. Can you give it to us like really succinctly so I can tell it to a kid like in 30 seconds before he starts screaming? Yes, I have some experience with that. Here's the gospel. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus, God of the universe, came to this world and died on a cross for our sin. And your faith in him, faith in his death, faith in his resurrection is what saves you from your sins. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. That's the gospel. We're about to enact the gospel by taking these communion elements. That's how we're saved. That's the gospel that apostle, the apostle Paul believed after that Damascus Road experience. That's the gospel that Pastor Tony embraced at the Nazarene Christian School in Austin, Texas, when I was about six years old. And that's the truth that all of us as sinners need to embrace in order to be saved from our sin. I do want to say this. I'll close with this, and then we can take communion. This is kind of a teaser for next week, okay? Because even as you look at verse 25, even as maybe you heard it read earlier, you know, Paul doesn't end verse 25 with that fantastic climactic statement. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, if I was the Apostle Paul, I'd close there. I'd probably finish the book of Romans. Just, That's it. We're done. Because that is, that is, oh my God, that is great. That is a great way to close. And what follows is... Can I just be honest? It's a little more anticlimactic than climactic. Because look at the end of verse 25. Paul says, So then, so then, in light of all this stuff I talked about in Romans 7, the law and so forth, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Huh. It's kind of like, wah, 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 isn't it, at the end there? Like, what a downer. 
Why does Paul say that? Why did, why did God put that in there for us? Well, I think what Paul is trying to signal here, even after that climax of Christ Jesus saving us from our sin, is that the fight continues in our life. It continues until Christ returns. And there's still that, that fight going on inside of us. So what do we do about it? Do we just kind of sit back and lose the battle? Do we just let Brother Donkey have his way with us? No, we don't. But we've got to put a new strategy in place in order to battle against the sin inside. It can't just be willpower. It can't just, I'm just, just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. There's got to be something better than that that gives us victory over sin. And there is something better. You know what it is? You know what it is inside of us? Romans 7 is all about the law. The law, the law, the law, the law, the law. 23 times the law. You know what Romans 8 is about? You know what the most prominent word in Romans 8 is? The Spirit. And by the way, that's not, you know, the Spirit is welling, but the flesh is weak. That's not the little S Spirit inside of us. That is the capital S Holy Spirit. Your new strategy to battle sin in your life has to involve, has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn all about that starting next week. So come back for more. Next week is Fourth of July weekend, right? Right? I think I'm going to call my sermon next week Declaration of Independence, okay? Because there is freedom in the Christian life found not through the law and our willpower to fulfill the law, but by the Holy Spirit inside of us, right? More on that next week. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God. Through Jesus Christ, my Savior. Jesus, we confess our faith this morning. Our faith in the living God who created the world. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, set that glory aside for a time and came into this world and humiliated Himself by dying on a cross for our sins. We believe, Lord, that you paid the price for our sins. And we love you for it, Jesus. We love you because you first loved us and you died for us. And God, we thank you that you didn't just defeat sin, you defeated death. You rose from the dead, glorious. You're sitting at the right hand of God the Father, even right now, interceding on our behalf. 
Lord, we remember you. We worship you. We love you. God, remind us always of those twin truths that we are wretched and yet we are redeemed. We are holy and holy, but we are wholly redeemed by the blood of Jesus. May we never forget those twin truths, Lord. And we do pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Do that work in our lives, we pray. If you want that church, if you desire that, say amen with me. Amen.